Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax developments to the OECD's Pillar 2. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Check out PwC's Policy on Demand news platform that provides in-depth insights and analysis on tax policy developments. Policy on Demand is now available for free at policyondemand.pwc.com. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're recording from the Hotel Lobby Policy on Demand studio at PwC's International Tax Conference in Dana Point, California, where I'm excited to be joined by Phil Ramstetter. Phil is a PwC International Tax Partner based in Chicago, Illinois. In 2018, Phil spent almost a year in Paris as a tax policy consultant for business at the OECD, formerly known as BIAC, when he first joined me on the podcast. I personally hired Phil as an intern at PwC and have had the pleasure to watch him grow and mature as both a tax advisor and a person. Phil was admitted to the PwC partnership this past July and is expecting his first child in the coming months. I don't have any children of my own, but the young men and women that I have had a chance to develop and mentor during their careers are the closest I have. Phil is one of those, and I'm extremely proud of him. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. Excited to be here. It's great to be back on. In fact, you had to remind me that it was like almost five years ago. One Shocking. Of the, one of the very first podcasts. And so, so before we dive into the recently released administrative guidance from the OECD in February of 2023, can you take us back five years? Yeah. I mean, it seems like a long time ago. Um, I think we've all changed a little bit, but uh, where were we on Pillar 2 back then and, and how far have we come? Yeah, so thanks again for everything that you just said. As you said, I'm slightly gray or slightly overweight from where I was four <laughs> and a half years ago. But it happens. Here it we happens. are at this point. Yeah. But uh, so at that point in time, effectively, the two pillar project was in its kind of infancy of what it is today. So I think as we were talking, actually, listen to the old podcast just to make sure I didn't say anything that was blatantly incorrect All right. How'd you do? at the time. Actually, not too bad. All I was right. shocked by how little incorrect things that I said. I but try not anyways. to go back and listen to the prior Exactly. Ones. It is a bit difficult listening to yourself for like 35 <laughs> minutes as well. But anyway, so at that point in time, um, they were just evolving what was the digital project effectively at that time. And it was focused on several of the very large tech multinationals. Most of the focus at that point in time was the continuation of the Action 1 paper from the original BEPS project. And the thought was the rules of the tax system today are kind of not built to appropriately capture the profit that's in the system for tax and changes are required. So at that point in time, the papers ca that came out were really focused around what are the aspects of kind of technology businesses today that make them different from the historic businesses of the past that have people on the ground, have where, warehouses, et cetera. But at that point in time, by the time that I was leaving, it was not only focused on those big companies, which has continued into the Pillar 1 project we have, but also at that point in time, the Germans and the French were pretty vocal that they were also interested in effectively an anti-abuse rule and a, a minimum tax. And it effectively took four years for us, or I guess a little under four, to get the agreement and now have Pillar 2 at our 15% minimum rate. Yeah, and Pascal reminded us, on, on, or reminded me, on, the, on all of us on the last podcast, that it, it was really the U.S., you know, shortly before that time yeah. that we did that podcast, that really introduced the first minimum tax, obviously guilty. 
And uh, so maybe that's a good transition to yeah. the recent administrative guidance because we did get some some insights uh, with respect to guilty or blended CFC regimes blended as CFC. they as they call it. But so in 2023, in February 2023, received some admitted some administrative guidance. Before we dive into some of the specifics, how does that fit broadly within the framework of the Pillar Two rules? In other words, how much did we yeah. get? So effectively, as everyone knows, we, we we got the model rules in December of 2021. And then we got the initial additional guidance via the commentary in, in March of 22. And we've been patiently waiting over the last nine months to get additional guidance on called unresolved issues or unclear aspects of the rules and their application. So I would say the guidance is a bit of a mixed bag, but there are several areas where helpful guidance was provided and then also clarifications that were in line with how we were expecting the rules to apply. And I think we can also say there were still uh, there's still a whole lot of questions that Correct. are unanswered, but we'll come back to that at the end of the podcast yeah. and, and, and chat a little bit about well, what's left. Um, because implementing jurisdictions need to know these rules as they're drafting their domestic legislation. Exactly. So and the, the general thought for this is that everything we got in this admin guidance package will be released later this year as a part of a revised commentary document. And the thought is, and we'll get into it later, there may be other aspects that find themselves in that revised package as well, but more to come there. So I've been pretty excited about the convergence of both Guilty and Pillar 2, yep. because I have wasted a lot of oxygen on this podcast on, on, both, <laughs> both, topics. on both topics. So um, what did the, the, the administrative guidance tell us about blended CFC regimes or, or Guilty specifically? Perfect. So as you said, they, they, they basically define what is a blended CFC regime. And from everything that we've been able to figure out, the only tax regime that would seem to meet the definition and categories needed is guilty. Right. So it effectively requires no domestic inclusion of income. So for U.S. taxpayers, CAMPTI or book minimum tax will not be included. It also requires that the rate of tax is 15 or less. So subpart F income at a higher rate would, would not be within this category. Yeah, and so I'm not aware of any other jurisdictions exactly. so we've asked that have a similar type basically of Basically none. So, I, so I, I think the guidance is helpful in a few regards. First is there was a little bit of noise in the system that guilty was not even a qualified CFC regime. So that threshold question was answered that it is. And then the other aspect of the guidance is, well, if it's a CFC regime, there's allocation rules in the model rules to how you would push that tax that's booked at the U.S. level down to the CFCs below that actually had the income that gave rise to the guilty. And effectively, they come up with this methodology that proportionately pushes out that cost to the respective CFCs. So the example I try to do in my head, it makes it pretty easy, I think, for listeners, will be, assume you have two CFCs. One CFC has an effective rate of tax of 3.125. Another CFC has effective rate of tax of 8.125. If they both have income of 100, Effectively, the one that has the 8.125 is going to have a top-up tax amount of 5 to get the 13.125. The 3.125 has 10. And the way the allocation is done is effectively you would add both of those up for the denominator. So you'd have 15. For country A, would be 5 over 15 and get one-third of the guilty cost. Country B would have 10 over 15 and get two-thirds of so the you, guilty cost. So you proportionally push down 
that any tax related to guilty to any of those constituent entities that have a rate below 13.125. Correct. Now, as some of our astute U.S. listeners may know, but some of maybe our non-U.S. listeners may not be aware Special that enforcement is that where we're going? With yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm, we're not going to dive. We're not going to dive into that. But it's also possible for U.S. multinationals to still end up paying some U.S. tax on guilty, even if all of the jurisdictions that they operate are 13.125 for the reason that you just mentioned, because of expense apportionment. So. If you have a U.S. multinational, even a, if you have a U.S. multinational or even a, a U.S. holding company mm -hmm. that has um, CFCs below, and all of those CFCs are above 13.125 under the globe calculation, what happens then? So basically, they just took a very simplified approach and say, what is your inclusion and what are the available credits? Importantly, the available credits are net of the 904 limitation, so net of expense apportionment. So basically you would push down also any cost from expense apportionment, not only the guilty top of Right, and that's the general theory, but yep. if, there, if, if there's no jurisdictions that are below 13.125, then those taxes, those oh, U.S. Correct. taxes are gonna just stay as U.S. Stay as US taxes. So it could really impact the numerator of the calculation depending what that, what that globe calculation correct. is at each of the constituent and it's, entities. And it's worth calling out too that it, it is meant to be a proportionate push down to the low tax jurisdictions. Okay. Yeah. But if you only have one jurisdiction that is low tax, and let's say you have Costa Rica that has a million dollars of income and it's low taxed, it will get the entire amount of that pushdown. Great the, point. The numerator will be one, denominator will be one, they get everything. And that could be a significant amount of U.S. tax. For example, if there's a bunch of debt in the U.S. Exactly. or other R&E or similar type of expenses. And so I think the point that you're alluding to is that you have to be aware that you know they, if, if there's enough taxes that get pushed down, it could potentially threaten, if you will, the the rate at the U.S. and potentially bring the U.S. below 15 if enough of those U.S. taxes can exactly. get sucked down into the The thought the is, is that you want use of that credit at least somewhere, hopefully, and right. there's going to be several scenarios where you get no use for it anywhere in the group. And I will acknowledge that the OECD had a challenging task yeah. of trying to figure out an equitable way to do that certainly feels reasonable. I think there are, you know, we could debate of if are there other other ways yeah. that they, they could I can done imagine it, those discussions. I'm assuming some eyes glazed over pretty quickly oh, when yeah. you talk about the nuances of 861. And, and, and I've been involved in a number of those yeah. conversations. My, my, I tend to get a little bit more excited, but de definitely we don't need to go into that to the listeners. So the other thing before we dive into some more of the specifics was there was a, 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 a press release from U.S. Treasury that came out the same day as the administrative guidance. And it claimed that the guidance provided certainty on several key issues, including, and I'm going to quote here, protection of the low-income housing tax credit, as well as green tax credits, including those that were included in the Inflation Reduction Act. So does this OECD guidance, in fact, provide such protection? So the short answer, Doug, will be it does not. Yeah. It didn't I really seem to mention much on what was what was defined, what, how we define a qualified refundable exactly. tax credit. Exactly. There's some relief, which I think we'll get into in a minute with certain tax equity structures, but generally, yeah, no relief for those credits that we can find in the package. And maybe re remind listeners what are those, you know, what types of credits yep. are kind of good covered taxes in general? So good covered taxes generally within the rules are qualified refundable credits, and they're effectively like a subsidy, or they're a direct payment you can receive from the government for the extent of the credit, irrespective of whether you have taxable income to offset the credit against. So importantly, I think that the UK R&D credit falls within this category, probably 
not coincidentally, the UK team was involved in the drafting right. of that rule in order to get an appropriate outcome. So effectively the way that works is that you end up with some dilution of your rate because you have an above the line income item mm -hmm. that's not normally taxed, but you get dollar for dollar credit or add back of that qualified refundable credit within your cover taxes. Generally, most of the US tax credits, so R&E, affordable housing, et cetera, simply operate to re reduce the tax expense in the tax line. Right. Yeah, and then we, we don't obviously are gonna get into the depths of this, but with the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a whole number of different credits yep. and some with direct pay. And so a lot of questions with respect to how those types of mechanics kind of fit within the larger definition. Exactly. But what did the administrative guidance provide on, on covered taxes and specifically with tax equity structures? Because yep. I know that was a, a common question. Yeah, so there's basically this new bucket of taxes that they create that are qualified flow through tax benefits is effectively a defined term that you need to find yourself in. But it, it is effectively when you would go out and invest in some sort of like equity investment structure where you and others come together and the, the main purpose of that exercise is in order for you to reap the benefits of certain credits. So I think we see this in the banking industry with affordable housing credits where effectively they come and invest in this vehicle in order to get those credits. And effectively the way that the rules operate is they provide a result more closely similar to the qualified refundable credit mm -hmm. where when you're doing your calculation to the extent of the investment that is made. So let's say you invest $100 in this partnership and over the next six years they give you $20 of credits. For the first five years, you're gonna take that $20 of credits and put it in the numerator of your ETR formula as a good cover tax. For future years, so once you burn through that first 100, in year six, when you get that 20 of credit, it's simply gonna operate like any other refundable credit, reducing the cover tax in that year. So we got at least an answer on that. Yeah. Still a lot Which of other- Which I think is a helpful answer for, for, for many taxpayers, albeit a lot of our, our, our bigger multinationals that are heavy in R&E, and some of the other credits are kind of sitting, waiting for maybe some additional help. And hopefully credits. we get some more guidance on that. All right, so in addition to some of the covered taxes questions, two of the most common provisions mentioned are related to loss-making jurisdictions and for you know, the fellow nerds out there, 4.1.5 and transition <laughs> period transactions, 9.1.3, yeah. which has gotten you know, a lot of discussion. Let's start with loss making. Yeah. What did they tell us about the loss making jurisdictions? So, so generally the, the, the risk was if you have a loss, the thought was, well, how are you going to have a top-up tax amount if you're losing money? Isn't that just kind of piling on a bad situation? And the mechanics generally created a potential top-up tax exactly. for loss-making jurisdictions. Exactly. So uh, hopefully I don't lose you with the example. This is the one that's in the commentary that they've called out before, is any permanent difference for tax that results in a bigger tax loss than what your globe loss would be, any difference for that perm item is going to result in a potential 415 top-up. So the example in the commentary is like negative 15 versus negative 18, and as a consequence of having a tax loss of 120 instead of a globe loss of 100, you have three of top-up tax in that year. The way that the guidance works Which seems is that, like an odd yeah, result. Which seems like an loss, odd result. In a loss year. So the, effectively, this is a beneficial item for taxpayers in that they provide an election that you can make. So in that example, I just said with three. They can take that three and carry it forward into a year when they actually have globe income. And then in that year they actually have globe income, that three will reduce their cover tax in that future year. The importance of that is that it doesn't result in an immediate top-up tax of three in that future year. So let's say you had 100 of income and you paid 20 of tax. 
you would reduce that 20 down to 17 with this three, and you could still be in a position where in certain high tax jurisdictions, you're, you're not gonna end up in a top-up tax position. And what I, I will mention is that effectively what it does is it creates another attribute that has to be tracked. Outside so, the system. There, outside to to the my knowledge, a lot of the software tracking systems don't have that baked in yet. Right, and so I think that it's just another challenging thing. It's something that as U.S. tax advisors, we're very familiar with. We have all these different things that we need to track, and we're starting to kind of pile up you know, a, a number of different attributes that taxpayers will need yep. to, to, to monitor and keep track of, you know, periodically as they're going through that, their annual calculations. Yep. All right, so let's move to transition period. So what did they okay. tell us about transition period transactions? Okay, so this is our, I have spent more time than I care to admit on this 9.1.3 transition rule. I think I've read the text of the model rule probably 60 times at this point. And the reason, I think, is because these are the one set of rules that arguably are already in play today, today. right? Agreed. Because, you know, when the rules were initially announced, and we've talked about it on the podcast, it was in November of 2021. And so that to the extent that there are any transactions between when those rules were proposed, they're potentially subject to the rules. So we've gotten a lot of questions about, well, how does this apply on just kind of ordinary transactions that companies are doing? What does it mean for pillars? So the general approach of the rule was kind of built through the construct of you have IP or certain assets in a low tax or no tax jurisdiction, and they did not want taxpayers to be able to sell that asset to another entity in the group in a higher tax jurisdiction and create either amortizable basis going forward or a deferred tax asset to be utilized for Pillar 2 purposes. So the way the rule just as outlined works is that they effectively turn off any basis at the acquiring company and turn off any DTA that would be booked at the acquiring company. So we've been sitting with that because it, it raises a bunch of business issues of, I bought a target, I want to figure out what I do with their assets, or we were already planning on this global restructuring with respect to our principal model, whatever it may be. So the guidance in this kind of has two main elements. The first is an expansion of what is caught within the 9.1.3 rule, which is effectively not just the straight sale transaction, so like sale transactions, whether that's a license, a migration of an entity, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it was very broad. On and what on could be and, considered a transaction? And it effectively says a non-exclusive list. So basically yeah. anything that could be framed up that way can be within 9.1.3. The beneficial aspect of what was provided in the rules is they do provide relief now, so you can get basis at the acquiring company for some of our IFRS taxpayers, and you can get a deferred tax asset at the acquiring company for some of our US GAAP taxpayers if you pay tax at the seller or you utilize an attribute at the seller that otherwise would have been a good deferred tax asset going forward under the rules. So the, the easy example is you buy a French Target, you want to sell the IP out of the French Target to the US Right. Or Very common transaction or for US wherever the, the principal and substance is within our group. The way that the rules operate would be provided you pay 35% tax in France, I, anything above 15%, they're going to give you that deferred tax asset or give you that basis if you're under IFRS at the acquiring company. Very helpful and Very equitable helpful. guidance. Exactly. It's, it's good. All right, so let's move to the qualified domestic minimum top-up tax. And so to remind listeners, this was kind of a late entry yep. into a late horse in the race on Pillar 2. 
and generally allows com countries that are implementing to effectively enact a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax to collect the top-up tax themselves right. such that somebody, another jurisdiction would not be able to collect it under the income inclusion yeah. rule or the under-tax profit rule. But we've had no guidance to date on actually what is a QDMTT and how it should Correct. be defined. I don't think we need to go into all the mechanics, but I did mention some of the hallmarks. Do you want to highlight really kind of what some of the things that might be of interest to listeners? Exactly. So generally this is a domestic top-up tax, obviously. So it's, it's meant to be calculated based upon the domestic excess profit. So basically the same base as the Pillar 2 rules. They added in two additional guiding principles so to be consistent with the design of the GLOBE rules and to provide outcomes that are consistent with the GLOBE rules. So the general thought is compute it just like you would an IR, UTPR, albeit you apply it at the domestic level. However, they acknowledge that there are going to be certain differences in how that assessment will be made, and that within itself will not disqualify it from being a qualified um, domestic minimum top-up tax. Importantly, I think there's a couple of differences from how this rule would apply and how your top-up tax would normally be calculated for Pillar 2 purposes. Notably, they require that CFC taxes, so the guilty example that we were just walking through, or taxes paid out of head office with respect to a permanent establishment, that those taxes are not allocated down to the country that and may be And not just guilty, normal subpart F for exactly. U.S. and any type of CFC, any so type like of Japan CFC or other regimes exactly. are, are not pushed down for guilt exactly. or for QDMTT. Which is different than obviously the actual Pillar 2 rules, which would say that allocation is included as a covered tax in that jurisdiction that we allocate it to. So I think that is a, a difficult pill to swallow for some of our U.S. taxpayers in that they may not get any benefit for the guilty credits that they're going to pay. Let's say they're in Ireland and they With have a little bit of top up. Rate. So 12 yeah. and a half, but now the QDMTT in Ireland will apply to top them up to 15. They're still paying their guilty tax and it doesn't go anywhere at the end of the day. So I think there's going to be several scenarios where you end up with maybe not double taxation in the purest sense, but certainly additional taxation. Yeah. From and, well, I think that. double taxation yeah. is, is, is potentially likely there. One thing I, I did want to mention and, and see if you had any comment or thoughts on was that the guidance allows for variation in design. You know, this is something yeah. that I've been very focused on is just really trying to understand if each jurisdiction has their own income inclusion rule and under tax or slight variations in the income inclusion rule and the under tax profit rule, the complexity it's going to create for taxpayers to actually do the calculations. And I'm going to quote here because it said that some, quote, some degree of customization of a QDMTT in each jurisdiction is to be expected. And it goes on to say that variations in outcomes between the minimum tax and GLOBE rules will not prevent that tax from being treated as a QDMTT if those variations systematically produce a greater incremental tax liability, closed quote. And so I think one of the questions I have, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this as well, it says it's got to be a greater incremental tax liability, but whose greater incremental tax liability? Is that relative to the implementing jurisdiction, or is that relative to another IIR or UTPR jurisdiction that could also be subject to that? And if it's the latter, what happens if a number of jurisdictions have slightly different bases for purposes of determining the UTPR, for example? Do you, uh, is there any thoughts or yeah. was there any clarity and so, what that means? The short answer is no, there is no clarity, but I would say, I would suspect they meant it with respect to the latter. So with respect to these IR UTPR jurisdictions, just based upon the mechanic of how the QDMTT applies, because effectively the way you determine your jurisdictional top-up tax is that you would determine the top-up tax and then you would provide a direct credit of the QDMTT against that amount. And then if you had any remainder, somebody else could pick it up. So if the amount is in excess of what that otherwise number would be, 
it's meant to at least reduce that to zero such that you wouldn't have a pickup elsewhere in the system. Right. And how that is interpreted. How the, the, the other big thing, and I, th I think you alluded to it, is these differences. One of the major differences is going to be they allow you to use the local statutory gap versus, in the U.S. tax contest, the U.S. gap right. for U.S. UPs. And as a consequence, that causes a couple things. One, there's just blatant differences between the sure. two standards and kind of what the numbers will be. Two is that it provides a very difficult compliance environment and provision environment for our clients because whatever you're creating systematically for the whole group is going to need to be tailored for each one of those jurisdictions as the rules come online versus if you're kind of aggregating everything in one spot and spitting it back out based upon the same rules, that's an easier exercise. Right. Um, and maybe the last thing on the QDMTT that I'll note that the guidance states that, it's, that the QDMT is not required to have a substance-based carve-out or de minimis income exception like we see yeah. in the with respect to country by country report for, for the model rules and commentary for the just general IAR and UTPR, but it says if it does, it cannot be more expansive than those exceptions permitted under the GLOBE rules. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. G generally, like from both quotes you read, it can be worse is right. basically the approach for, for, for most of these items. And and uh, the other thing I will, will know, which we don't really need to dive into, is that the QDMTT was not a part of the EU directive. And so I do have some just kind of practical questions with respect to how the EU is going to implement and do we end up with kind of a hodgepodge of different rules within the EU related to the QDMTT, but, but time will tell. Yep. So let's run through a, a few more items. There's a whole bunch in there. We're not going to cover all of them, but wanted to run down a list of some of the maybe the less publicized yep. areas. The less so, sexy items. Yeah, because the other ones really have gotten a lot, yeah. of, the, a lot of the billing. Um, so start with uh, the rebasing and the 750 okay. million euro threshold. So basically the way the rules apply is that you're in the soup or you're in scope if two of your last four accounting years, you have revenues of 750 million euro or more. And the question was, well, if I'm in pound or I'm in dollar, whatever it may be, how do I determine how my currency reflects or relates back to the, the 750? And the guidance just says, the rate used will be the December rate from the year prior. So the average rate for that month from the, from the year prior for that determination. All right, so not blended for the year? No, not just, so some years that'll be a good answer, some years that'll be a bad answer, right. I'm sure. And in years with foreign exchange volatility, you know, frankly, any company that's close to 750 million, yeah. you know, in particular that they're not in Euro, you're obviously gonna need to pay attention to just business and operational results, but also currency, because that could certainly move the needle and take people potentially um, into scope. Yep. All right, next one wanted to cover common control. So common control, so this is, a topic that I think some of our U.S. GAAP payers, taxpayers have been very interested in for the last year and a half. And basically, the, the construct of the rules are built upon this understanding that when one company within the group sells something to another company within the group, that that company that's selling is going to recognize income, and the acquiring company is going to take fair market value basis on what it got. U.S. rules do not apply that way. So if you're under U.S. GAAP, we have this common control standard, so if both those entities are within the common control group, you effectively just disregard that transaction. So it would be a nothing. So there's no income recognized and no basis at the acquiring company. The guidance we got on this front is not too long. It's only about a page. As understood, I think the IF and the working party had more that ended up not getting agreed to. But effectively what it says is once the rules are applied, so once you're within the pillar two globe rules, 323, which is our arm's length standard rule, so every transaction needed to be done at the arm's length standard, 
will apply to U.S. GAAP common control taxpayers in a way that will trigger income mm -hmm. at that selling income or selling entity that's brought within the charge of, of GLOBE. They actually punt on the latter portion of that equation of providing basis at the acquiring company. There's a, a note in there that they'll do something to avoid double tax. So like what that actually means, I think we'll, we'll figure out here shortly. But helpful guidance in that we're probably still within our common control rules before these rules come online. Mm -hmm. And once the rules come online, we'll have a similar result for US GAAP as we do for IFRS. Yeah, and we'll put that, that, that point that you made in the, on the list of additional guidance that we still need Agreed. that needs to come out. We'll, we'll close with that. Um, next one was excluded dividends. So what did it tell us about excluded dividends? So excluded dividends. dividends, as we understand, this provision made its way into the admin guidance because certain taxpayers were maybe trying to exploit the treatment of dividends versus interest. And there were certain transactions where on one side of the deal, an instrument may be treated as debt and provided deduction, while on the other side of the deal, it was treated as an equity interest and there was a dividend inclusion. So you got a deduction in one and dividend income in the other. Effectively, what the guidance said is that you're not going to be able to do that. You can't get a deduction on one side and then have an exclusion from globe income on the other side. So they effectively shut down that treatment and uh, otherwise, I think they called it like a hyping or um, mechanism to increase the ETR in that place. So that will no longer work if you want to say that Got based it. upon. All right, guidance. the last one I wanted to touch on was debt releases or what we commonly refer yeah. to in the U.S. as cancellation sure. on indebtedness income. What about debt release? Yeah, so, so this one kind of goes back to before of the loss-making companies. There was a lot of really bad results within the model rules for certain struggling companies, one of which was cancellation of indebtedness income. So let's say you're going through bankruptcy, and as a result, your debtors release you of certain debts. Generally, that results in book income for that debt that you no longer have to pay. However, local tax regimes, because they acknowledge the situation these companies are in, exempt that amount from tax. So based upon the clear reading of the rules, you could have income with no tax. Right. And basically this, it's in certain narrow situations, it's kind of against related party scenarios, but in certain instances, provided you meet the requirements, they will effectively not result in that desperate yeah, They really let you, yeah. they allow you to follow tax. You can effectively make the election to, to follow effectively. tax. Effectively, so you would reduce your income by that amount of the COD right. amount. All right, well again, there were a whole number of, of, of other ones. I, th I think those were really the most yep. relevant or at least some of the ones that you know I've certainly been interested in and gotten questions on. So maybe the last question here is, what, what do we expect about additional guidance? And yep. so there's still a whole number of issues. We highlighted a couple over the course of the mm -hmm. podcast, but um, have we heard anything from the OECD or what can we otherwise be expecting for additional guidance? Yep. So as we understand, they are working on additional guidance. I think back to the earlier point, it appears that common control is one of those items that we may received, receive more detailed information. There are other questions with respect to certain other taxes and, and things that they're working through as well. We would expect that to come out later this year in addition to all of this other stuff making its way into this revised version of the commentary document. So I think the takeaway for a lot of taxpayers is if you yourself have certain, call it, difficult outcomes that you're coming across within these rules that do not seem to make sense. I, I, I think there is still a route to provide comments to potentially receive some helpful guidance on some of these points that are 
whether it be tax credits that we were talking about before or some other item. Yeah, so said another way, I think there's still an opportunity for taxpayers, advisors, state, advisors stakeholders to still engage, whether that's through the business, through the business of the OECD or, or other mechanisms. Yep. Um, I, I do want to note um, the, the one challenge is that implementing jurisdictions have to draft domestic legislation. And depending on the various jurisdiction, that domestic legislation has to be introduced at a certain point during the year yep. in order for the income inclusion rule to be effective January 1st, 2024. So the longer delays that we get in the implementing in, in, in this in additional guidance, we could end up with variations in implementing jurisdictions rules. Exactly, and the more guidance you get, it's not 100% black and white, even when you get the guidance. So I had a partner the other day, we were talking through an item, we're debating a paren in one of the examples. Right in the rules and it's like, well, we're in the weeds on this, but as a hundred countries or so pick this up and implement it, are they going to give it the same level of scrutiny? Are they going to tweak it? Is it going to be the same? Kind of back to your point. I think we'll get more guidance. I just don't know exactly what that yeah. will look like. And then maybe the last thing on the administrative guidance that I'll mention is that to the extent that certain jurisdictions don't have this guidance before they introduce their domestic legislation, what it, what it likely means is that it won't be until the following year that they'll be able to amend or change. And so I think what that means is that, first of all, it's going to be a very dynamic environment where these laws are constantly changing. And I think it, it is difficult just constitutionally in a number of countries for them to make direct reference to the OECD guidance. Said another way, that's not law. You know, in certain jurisdictions, and I know Australia is one, they've tried to point to the OECD as administrative guidance. There's been some pushback from the courts. So it'll be interesting to see how various countries kind of try to take that. Do they have to every year amend their rules or really practically exactly. how that some, works? Some have been able to do the same thing with the, the TP guidelines that the OECD puts exactly. out. They're able to reference a kind of living document on that front. We in the U.S. obviously cannot yeah, do that, and a lot that. of others cannot as well. And, and, and that is the, the, the document that I was referencing with respect to Australia. Got so, it. all right, Phil. Well, this was a lot of fun. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Hopefully you don't have to wait another four and a half years to be invited back to the Cross-Border Tax Talks Can't podcast. Wait. And congratulations again on your admission. Thank you. And you're expecting a little girl. All right, so thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Phil Ramstetter, International Tax Partner. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.